this evening, and we're going to look at the first chapter and verses 1 to 4. That's page 216 in the Church Bibles, Joshua chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4. Now Christmas seems ages ago uh, for many of us, and indeed it was almost a whole month ago now, but one of the verses that we read every Christmas, and many of us have memorised, is when the angel uh, said what the name of Jesus would be. The angel said in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. And why was he called Jesus? What's the next part of the verse? Because he will save his people from their sins. And the name of Joshua means the same thing as the name Jesus. Joshua means God saves. Joshua is the Hebrew name. Jesus is the Greek. It means God saves. And we've just been singing a song, haven't we? Jesus saves. And that is the message of the book of Joshua. God saves. And it's God who through his salvation and his deliverance brings his people into the rest that he promises them. But for this evening, by way of introduction to the book, I want us to look at the character of Joshua and ask some questions to help us understand. Who was Joshua? Why did God choose Joshua to be the leader of his people? And what does that mean for us today? But also, one of the main themes of the book of Joshua is about going into the land, into the promised land. And I want us to look at why was this land longed for? Why was this particular land given to the people of God to possess? And we'll see that actually the people of God never possessed all of the land that they were promised. And we're going to look, or at least ask the question, why? Why was it never fully claimed? But in context, the book of Joshua begins with a death, the death of their leader. It says in the first sentence of the first verse, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Moses the servant of the Lord. Moses was a character like no other in the Bible. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. If you turn back just a page to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, in chapter 34 and verses 10 to 12, let me just read you those verses. Since then, this is after Moses had died, No prophet had risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses was an amazing character in the Bible. He was the one to whom God gave the law on Mount Sinai, laying the foundations for the whole of the Jewish religion. 
He was the one who initiated, as leader, the great feasts that they were to celebrate, and even, like the Passover, celebrate today. He was the one that led them out of Egypt from their slavery and through the wilderness. And because most of the people that went through the wilderness at the beginning had died away, except Joshua and Caleb, as we'll see, most of these people that went into the promised land had only ever had Moses as their leader. He was the only one they had ever known, and he was a great leader. The stability was gone. The great man was gone. His experience and his knowledge had gone. And even he had died in spite of his greatness because he disobeyed God and he didn't get to go into the promised land. You can imagine at this point, Moses had died and the people were in dismay. But you know, even the greatest leaders of God's people are not indispensable to God's plans and purposes. Sometimes we can get all upset And rightly so, when a great Christian leader dies or even falls into sin. But even when that happens, God's great plans and purposes do not end. Nobody is indispensable in the purposes of God, not even Moses. Moses was dead, but God's work and his plan of redemption continued. And so at the time when they were in dismay, the people of God were looking for a leader. Look at verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. They didn't have to look very far for a leader. God had given them one. The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun. Now who was Joshua? Well, Joshua initially was born with the name Hoshua, which means salvation. And Moses, you can read about in Numbers chapter 13 verse 16, changed his name to Joshua, which means God brings salvation. And in lots of ways, because, not just because he has the same name as Jesus, but we'll see as we go through the book, in lots of ways, Joshua pictures Jesus. He's what's called a type of Christ. Some of the things that Joshua did pictures some of the things Jesus did. And we'll see that more as we go through the book. Nothing about uh, his father, none, is known. But Joshua himself is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9, where Moses commissions him to to choose some men and to fight the Amalekites. And if you remember the story, we're not going to go back there now, but if you remember the story, Joshua was fighting in the valley against the Amalekites, while Moses was up on the mountain with Aaron and Hur praying to God. And when Moses prayed and his arms were lifted up, Joshua and his uh, army were winning the battle. And when Moses' arms were getting tired and they went down, the Amalekites seemed to be winning. And Aaron and Hur ended up holding his arms up, relying on God for the victory to be won. And of course, it was. 
And Joshua comes up from time to time in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, always as Moses' assistant. Moses was called the servant of the Lord, and in the Pentateuch, Joshua is known as the assistant of Moses. And in this role, uh, Joshua was the one that went up Mount Sinai with uh, Moses to receive the Ten Commandments. Joshua was guarding the entrance to the tabernacle uh, in the tent of meeting when Moses went inside. He assisted Moses throughout the the first, uh, well, the, the last four books of the Pentateuch, Exodus to Deuteronomy. And of course, his other most famous and notable appearance in those books was that he was one of the 12 spies that were sent into Canaan. If you remember, there were 12 spies, and as the children's song goes, uh, 10 were bad and 2 were good. Joshua and Caleb came back and reported that the Israelites would be able to go into the land and take it. But the 10 other spies, they said, no way, there's big giants over there, we're never going to get the land. And God judged them, and that whole generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, were unable to go into the promised land, and they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. So that's who Joshua was. Joshua, God saves. But why was he chosen to be leader? Well, there are three areas of of what makes a good leader of God's people that Joshua, in all the texts that describe him or talk about him, fits into. And on the screen, I'll bring up the, 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 the points, and there's, quite a, there's a few scripture references on there. Don't turn to them now, but note them down if you want to take notes and look at them at home, or email me or something, and I'll, I'll email you them, because we're not going to go to all of them. But if you want to do your own reading, they're useful references. So the first thing we see is the character. You cannot serve God effectively if you are not a person of godly character. And in a number of places in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Joshua's character is described. First of all, Joshua, as a a man, was blameless and a good example. He was not tainted by what happened with the golden calf in Numbers 32. In Numbers 32, Moses had come down from uh, Mount Sinai with the law. And if you remember, Aaron who was uh, looking after the people, if you like, at the time, had built a golden calf because they weren't sure Moses and Joshua were going to come back. Well, with Joshua not being involved in that at all, he was blameless from any involvement and was a good and godly example of God's people. You know, a leader, the Bible says, needs to be blameless. That doesn't mean a leader has never sinned. I'm a pastor... I still struggle with sin, but we need to make sure that we aren't, uh, haven't sinned in such a way that can just disqualify us in ministry, a reputation for, for sinning and all those kind of things. We, Joshua was blameless. He didn't have that. He was a blameless, godly, good example, not tainted like many of those from Exodus 32. Joshua was a character who trusted in the promises of God. When he went in as a spy into the land of Canaan, in numbers there, he came back with Caleb. And he was 
but one of only the two spies to say, we can go and do this. Even though there were obstacles, even though there were big giants in the land, Joshua said, God can do this for us. Let's go. He trusted in the promises of God. And then there's verses that describe Joshua's character. So in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 18, uh, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in, in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay hands on him. He had a spirit of leadership. Joshua could lead people. And a leader, by definition, has to be able to lead, doesn't he? People aren't going to follow someone you cannot lead. Joshua had a spirit of leadership. Again, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 32 and verse 12, it describes Joshua like this. Not one except Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. They followed the Lord wholeheartedly. A leader of God's people needs to give the Lord his whole heart and not be distracted by all the things of this world. A leader needs to give his whole heart to God. Joshua followed the Lord wholeheartedly, along with Caleb. If the leader isn't wholehearted following God, then the people following him won't be wholehearted either. God wants wholehearted, not half-hearted leadership. In Deuteronomy chapter 34 and, 29, and verse 9, this is what it says about Joshua. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. Now this wisdom was from God, but nevertheless, the leader needs to be wise. Joshua had, a char- had the character of wisdom given to him by God. And a leader needs the spirit of wisdom to lead the people of God. But Joshua was not perfect. As we go through the book of Joshua, you don't see uh, a lot negatively said about him. But in Numbers chapter 11, Moses had to rebuke Joshua because Joshua didn't want two uh, specific men to have the Holy Spirit because he was jealous that only Moses should have it. And Moses rebuked him and said that he wished everybody in the camp had the Holy Spirit. So Joshua wasn't perfect, but he was a leader of character. Often, when we're looking for leaders, we look just for ability, don't we? But God is looking for people of character as well. Now, Joshua fit that well, but what about you? What about me? Because I'm not talking here just to leaders of churches or big Christian organizations, All of us are leaders in some way or another. We are parents, Sunday school teachers. We are examples in the church. We lead people to Christ in our places of work, where we should be. So all of us, in some way, are leaders, and so all of us should be building this kind of godly character in our lives. Do you follow the Lord wholeheartedly? Or are you a bit of a half-hearted Christian? Do you pray and ask God, as we're told to in James, for wisdom? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. 
Do you trust in the promises of God? Do you follow him, leading others that they could follow your example? We need to be people of character. But if we're going to be leaders of God's people, we don't just need character, we do also need ability. And Joshua had amazing abilities given to him by God, that he was a man of experience as Moses' aide or assistant. First of all, uh, we see that he had military ability, military ability. And as we go through Joshua, with all the battles that go on, especially in the first half, we'll see that it was really important that Joshua was a man of military ability. We know that he was a man who was militarily able because of the battle of the Amalekites. He showed skill and reliance on God. When we go into chapter 2 and we see Joshua sending out spies on a reconnaissance mission, we see he was a man who was wise. He didn't just go charging in. He was a, a, a good military leader. But at the same time, in that battle with the Amalekites, he relied on God. It was Moses' prayers that enabled Joshua's military ability to gain the victory. So it was both skill and reliance upon God. And also, uh, Joshua had confidence in God. In Numbers chapter 14, when he was one of the spies, it said, Joshua said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land. And if you're going to be a leader, leading people into battle, you better have confidence. If you're going in, quaking in your boots, your men are going to be scared stiff, aren't they? Joshua was a good military leader. But secondly, we see that Joshua's ability was enhanced because he was mentored by Moses. He was mentored by Moses. God commissioned Moses specifically to train Joshua up as his replacement. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 38, Moses is told, But your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter the land. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. Later on in the same book, God says to Moses, Commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So Moses was told to uh, encourage and strengthen Joshua. And he did that. And at the same time as Moses' assistant, he would have seen how Moses worked, how God worked through him, how Moses encountered problems with the people of Israel, and how he dealt with them. He could not have helped but learn from the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. God prepared Joshua in a unique way to fulfill the task that he had him to do. And we see God doing this all the time. In the New Testament, if you look at the Apostle Paul, he was prepared before he was even a believer in a unique way. In the way he was brought up as a Jew, in his schooling under the great Gamaliel, as a Pharisee, as a man of high intellect, even as a Roman citizen, as we look at his life through the book of Acts and his epistles, all these things come together to enable Paul to be the great leader that he was. And you know, God, in whatever leadership capacity he has put you in, prepares you to do the job. We mustn't think that we cannot use our natural abilities and our previous experience, even as non-Christians, even in our places of work um, that, are, that are not Christian organizations, that God cannot use them to do his work and fulfill his great plans and purposes. 
In my own life, I use loads of all that I was learning in IT, in business, in my work here in the church. And that's a good thing. I don't come into ministry here and say, well, all that's finished. Everything I did for the last 10 years was rubbish and put it all away. No, God was using those things that I learned to help me serve God here in Pelsall. And even things that you learnt before you were a Christian, you don't throw them away. God prepares us. He prepares us to do the work he's given us to do. Today, often people uh, go into ministry with no experience whatsoever. It used to bug me uh, a lot when I was on the Gospel Partnership course in Devon. There was young people uh, that were there that were, were... saying they were called to ministry with no experience whatsoever and they couldn't, you could tell they weren't ready. You could tell they weren't ready. There there can be a lack of understanding of people, there can be a lack of ability to plan uh, a day uh, and time and have good habits of work and all those kinds of things. God uses our experiences to help us fulfill his purposes. And if anyone here may be wondering about Christian ministry, I would say this, don't rush. Allow God to prepare you. Allow time to test the final bit of what we're going to look at here, how Joshua was called, his calling. After God had prepared Joshua with the experience he had with Moses and endowed him with the character traits we read about, we read that Joshua was called of God. First of all, if, if, if someone says they're called of God to do something and there's no character and there's no ability, you've got to question if the calling is true. But Joshua was certainly called of God. First of all, though, notice uh, in his life that Moses was the first one to receive the call for Joshua. That was in Numbers chapter 27. And verses 18 to 22, Moses was told that Joshua would succeed him. Moses was told first. And Moses took Joshua, stood him before the priest and the whole assembly, and laid hands on him. Any call of God should be recognized by other people. Not just for Christian ministry, but for anything. If God has called you, others should recognize. And that's why the laying on of hands was done. And that's why we still do that today, don't we, when someone is called into ministry. It's a sign that is a recognition of God's calling on that person's life. But also in Joshua chapter 1, we read how Joshua himself received the call. He says, now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan. Now, Moses is dead, Joshua, now, your time has come. You're now the leader. All of us, as I said, are leaders of some kind. This doesn't just apply to pastors or leaders in large Christian organizations. We're all called to serve God in some way. And you know, we should be developing godly character. We should be reading the scriptures, reading good Christian books, applying them to our lives. We should be praying and seeking God's guidance. We should be learning from the trials and the sinful mistakes of our past. We should be developing our abilities. You know, whatever it is we're called to, whether you're uh, called to be a mum or a father or a husband, 
whether you're called uh, as a, as in, a, in a place of employment, whatever it is, we should be looking to improve and get better. We, you know, Christians should try and be the best we can be at whatever it is we're doing. So we should try and be the best mother or father or husband or wife that we can possibly be. And we should be looking for ways of being better, seeking God. In our place of employment, we should be trying to be the best worker we can possibly be for the Lord. As we serve God in the church, we should find ways of developing our ministries, doing the best we can. And even as people who are retired, we should be looking, well, not we because I'm not retired, but you should be looking for ways to grow and develop even in your abilities to serve God with the time you have. We don't grow sometimes because we can, we can be satisfied with too little of God. You know, there's an ungodly discontentment sometimes. Ungodly discontentment is when you want more of something you don't need. So usually that's something material or something you think will fulfill you but won't. But there's also a godly discontentment. Let me explain what I mean by that. As Christians, we should always be longing for more of God. We should never be happy to sit where we are and say, I've had enough of God, I'm right where I should be. Because we're never where we should be until we're in heaven where our home is. Too many Christians can be satisfied with what they did 20 years ago at Bible college or whatever, or when they first became a Christian and never want to grow and never want to read anything else or do anything else. We should be longing for more of God, to grow more and more, to develop our character and our abilities so we can be used to the best we can for God. That's why Joshua was called as a leader. And that's what God wants for us as well. So that's the first part, looking at Joshua. But the second part, as we look at the book of uh, Joshua, is the people were longing for a land. They were longing for a land. Look at verses 2 to 4. Let's, let's read those together. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. Well, first of all, why were the people longing for a land? Well, before the book of Joshua, the people had been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And then before that, they were in Egypt for, depending on what scholar you like to adhere by, between 215 and 430 years. Either way, a long time without a land of their own. And after so long wandering in the desert so long without their own homeland, these people were longing for a land of their own. A place the Bible calls a place of rest, the promised rest of the people of God. And we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, that they never fully received that rest. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Here remains then a Sabbath rest, for the people of God. These verses tell us that the ultimate fulfillment of the promised land is not this physical land of Israel. 
So where is it? Well, in the New Testament, we read two things about rest. First of all, that it's from Jesus. It's in Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there is a spiritual rest for our souls in Jesus. In an, un, uh, in an unrestful world, a world where people are running around all over the place, it's to Jesus we go for true rest for our souls. But one day in the future, that rest will become a physical rest for the people of God, when we will be with God physically in heaven for eternity. That's our ultimate inheritance. When we die, and when things are fully uh, consummated in the end, we're not going to all be plonked in Israel. (laughs) We're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth. Joshua was a great leader, but he never led them to the ultimate rest. Even at the end of Joshua, there was strife and enemies at their doors. But Jesus is the greatest leader. And he leads us to that final rest. And without, again, spoiling the end of Revelation, we know from the title of the series, The Lamb Wins, doesn't he? We know that rest is for the people of God. And Jesus takes us there. And we inherit it fully. Where was this rest in Joshua's time, though? Where was the land that they were promised? Well, I'm going to put a map on the screen. This may surprise you, but that was the land, which is the, it's not very clear, but there's a black line that shows basically what was described here in verse 4. The promised land of God's people was way bigger than just the little strip of land called Israel that they live in, that, that Israel is now. And way bigger than was received even during the time of David and Solomon. This was the land that was promised to the people of God. Why this land? Well, in the, in the verses we read, it says, I will give you every place where you set your foot. In other translations, it says, every place I have, I, have get, sorry, I have given you every place where you set your foot. Meaning it's in the past tense. It's already been given to God's people. So this land was gifted to God's people before, they, before the conquest in Joshua. It was promised to the people of God. First of all, it was promised to Abraham. There's three specific places you could go. In chapter 12, he's promised a land. In chapter 13... That land was more specifically promised, but this specific land was in Genesis chapter 15 and verses 18 to 21. God promised this specific land to Abraham. And then that promise was given to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, his son. And then Moses himself had this land reiterated to him in Exodus chapter 23. So this land specifically was promised to the people of God. And Joshua here is told of this land because this is what is promised and God's saying, now you, Joshua, can go with God's people and inherit the land. That's why in verse 2 it says, the Israelites, the people of God, Abraham's children, can inherit the land. But this leaves us with a question, or at least it did with me. What about those who already live there? Is it fair that God can just say, 
it's yours, the people that live there can get out? And that's a good question because it's one that Christians can be challenged on and we need to have an answer for. And here's my, uh, my go at an answer. First of all, who owns the land, really? Who owns the world, really? First of all, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The whole world is God's. It is not ours. This land of England is God's land. Some of you may say amen to that, but it is God's land. God owns it. And God owns this land too. Secondly, the people of the land had opportunity to turn to God and follow him as king. We see that in Rahab in chapter 2. But people rejected God as king. And in fact, further back in the Bible, in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham that he had to wait to inherit the land. And he says in chapter 15 and verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What God is saying there is he is waiting. There was a time of mercy where God withheld judgment from this land until Joshua's time. People had time to turn to God. God in his mercy waited and he endured in this land horrific idolatry for centuries before this moment came. The people of Canaan had awful practices of child sacrifice, temple prostitution and many other horrors that were just awful. And here when it comes to Joshua, really the people of this land were under God's judgment for sin and Israel were God's tool for that. God was replacing an evil people with his people who were supposed to be a light to the world. And although they they weren't necessarily very good at that, that's another story altogether. But can we really say that it's wrong for God to put an end to the gross sin that was taking place that caused suffering for millions and led so many astray into those same practices? There's two other things I want to say before we move on from that question. First of all, conquest of this kind in Joshua is not a normative process for God's people today, for Christians. In other words, Christians are not supposed to go and march into other lands to make them Christian. Joshua and the conquest was a particular unique point in redemptive history. And in fact, as Christians... In this whole world, the Bible describes us as aliens and strangers as we wait for the world to come. The conquest of Christians is the spreading of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, not to go fighting wars and battles in other lands on this earth. And secondly, I would say this, for those maybe here that are still objecting to God giving them this land, as Christians, when we look at the very end of time, What's God going to do? He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and judge the whole world. Because the earth is the Lord's. It is his land. But the other question as we look at this map is why was this land never taken? Why was this land never taken? Because the the amount of land promised in verse 4 is huge. And Israel never fully occupied it. Well, the answer contains a number of reasons. First of all, the promise of driving out the 
the enemies was conditional on obedience to the command to love and obey God. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, and verses 22 and 23, this is what it says. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. If you carefully observe these commands. And we'll see, and you see through the history of Israel, that they did not do that. The problem was that the land was given to them, but they so often disobeyed God that the enemies were never fully driven out. Secondly, the promise in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 3, if you read it, is that God will give them land wherever their feet tread. Well, the implication being, if the feet never tread there, the land wasn't going to be received. And what seemed to happen was they received the land and they were so satisfied with the little they had, they never desired for more. And by the end of the book, we see that Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jebusites, the Philistines were still there, and most of these lands in this map here had never even been treaded on. And brothers and sisters, we can relate to this, can't we? We can be satisfied with so little of what God has promised us. What we have versus what, we, what is promised can be a big gap. We can be so comfortable in our, in our material world when God has promised us something so much greater. We shouldn't be comfortable here. This is not our home. The Bible tells us in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. If we had a passport, if you like, it's the passport of heaven. And we're foreigners here. You know, when I went to France on holiday in the summer last year, I wasn't comfortable there like I am here. They spoke differently. The food was different. The roads, they drive on the wrong side. And all those kind of things, it was different. It wasn't comfortable in the same way that I'm comfortable here. And we should be a little bit uncomfortable this side of heaven because it's not where we belong, but we can be very comfortable here, can't we? But God has, 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 has got so much greater things in store for us and we should be longing for them. But we can be so happy in our comfortable world. But furthermore, we have so much that God has promised us that we never claim ourselves. I'll give you some examples. God promises us he will answer our prayers if we ask him. He promises us peace from our anxieties when we pray, and yet we don't pray. That's an example of not claiming a promise that God has given to us. Ask and you shall receive, and we don't ask. God promises us that when we cast our burdens upon God, he takes them and gives us rest. And yet we try and deal with everything ourselves and don't give it over to God. God promises us that he will be with us always, 
but we ignore his presence with us. We ignore him and act as if he's not even there. God promises us that if we delight in him, he will give us the desires of our hearts, and yet our delight is in so many selfish things, rather than realizing that real delight and joy is found in God alone. You know, I was thinking this morning, I was talking to a couple of people, and I said, we were talking about loveless hearts, and I thought, you know, if, I, if, we, if, if, if we order something on the internet to be delivered to our house, like a new iPad or something like that, we're waiting with excitement for it to come to the door. Or if your phone contract ends and you get an upgrade, people are excited to receive their new phone. Maybe whatever else you get excited about being delivered, you, can, you wait at the door, you're longing for it. How often do you feel like that about Jesus? How often do you feel a longing for Christ like you have a longing for the things of this world? What do you long for more? Because if we long for Jesus more, we'll want to wake up in the morning and spend time with him. We'll be longing to be with Jesus. Now, as we looked at this morning, these things take time, habits to develop. Yes, but there should be a longing in our heart, an aching to be with the Lord and to want to spend time with him. And there's so many examples that we could give of where we don't claim what God has promised us. But what I'm saying is at this point in Joshua, they're standing looking out at the land, and God says, go get it. And we can just stay on this side of the Jordan, can't we, and look at what God has promised and don't bother going. We're going to see that Joshua and his people go. And the call this evening is for us to go and get what God has promised. So stop talking about following God and start serving him. Stop talking about what you, uh, you know, I'm going to start reading my Bible and start reading it. Stop talking about praying and start praying. Stop standing on the edge of the Jordan looking at what God has promised and start going over and getting it. Yes, it can be hard work and we'll see that it was difficult and took a lot of faith for the people of God. But they went and they received and so should we. I'm not saying it's easy. We'll see that it's not. But what I am saying is we need to have the faith to go and receive what God has promised. If only we would follow the command that goes through all of this chapter. Be strong and very courageous. But that's for next week. And we'll look at it then. (laughs) Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that we have so much that you have promised us. And I pray that there would be a longing in our hearts to receive the blessings that you are so willing to pour upon us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to live our lives longing for you. Help us to live our lives walking in faith, bringing glory to your name. Help us as leaders, in whatever capacity that is, to be godly, to develop our abilities and to fulfill the calling that you've given to us. We thank you for the examples we have in Scripture, but we thank you ultimately for the Lord Jesus and pray that we would walk in his steps.
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been thinking about the promises that we inherit from the Lord, and we're going to respond by singing of those things now as we stand and sing treasures.